Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We're a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into this same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and to reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Parents, if you have kids who are preschool age and younger, you want to take them to their class, you may feel free to do that right now. The rest of you, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 with us. We are we're making our way through the text here. Acts 17. Um, so good to be with you this morning. Uh, great to be opening the scriptures together. I'm Jeremy. I'm the senior pastor here, and we are going to be gathering this afternoon again at Tunnel Park and invite you to join us at four o'clock. We have four people being baptized today. Um, I'd go for the, I'd go through the names, but I know I will forget one in the moment right here. So uh, they will come to me, and I will tell you later. Um, <laughs> got to love the human mind, right? Um, We are studying, though, today Paul's second missionary journey, and we began this process a couple weeks ago as Paul and, um, and his crew are sent out. Paul and Barnabas kind of have a splitting off. Paul grabs Silas. He grabs Timothy. They go, and they start heading westward towards the region of Macedonia, the region of Greece, and if you were with us last week, we were in Acts 16, just an incredible passage, and in Paul and Silas in Acts 16, they're preaching the gospel to both God-fearers and Roman jailers in Philippi, or Philippi, you might say, Um, and they had been annoyed by a couple things, namely, a fortune-telling girl, and they cast a demon out of her. So this is is your recap, in case you weren't here last week. Uh, So they were beaten, they find themselves in jail, they're having a worship service, they're praying, and the text says that they're singing a song of praise. Maybe not the most appropriate time, at least that we would think of, to sing a song of praise, but the jailhouse rocked, and there was an earthquake. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. <laughs> they assure a jailer who was about to take his own life, don't do that, because his superiors were going to take his own life if he, if he had lost the prisoners, and they say, don't do that, we are all here. The jailer rushed in, and the text says he fell down because he recognized the greatness and the power and the presence of God, and in many ways, God used the opening of the physical jail doors to open the heart of the jailer toward him just an incredible story. So the jailer asked Paul and Silas how to be saved. Their response is believe, trust in the Lord Jesus. They taught them the truth of Scripture so that they knew it in their minds. They had proper understanding. The text says that the jailer and his household, they washed Paul and Silas's wounds. It's interesting that they included that little phrase in there, but they washed Paul and Silas's wounds. They were baptized, and their baptism was the outward sign of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And what came of that? Acts 16.11 says that they were filled with joy. They were filled with joy because when God moves and works in your life, one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Joy is the is the living reminder of the presence of God working in you despite your circumstances. And so, Paul and Silas uh, make a hasty exit, kind of, after bringing to the attention of the magistrates that they were unlawfully beaten as Roman citizens without a trial. They encouraged the brothers in the Lord, and they continued on, and we're going to pick that up in just a moment. But I want you to stop and think of something. Just consider it for a moment. Consider the effect of Paul and Silas's ministry. 
a jailer and a household, a God-fearing woman of wealth and status, a slave girl with a demon. Each of these people and more had amazing encounters with the gospel. Paul could not have made this happen in his own power. It was God who worked sovereignly in him, using his willing life to be a bearer of the gospel to each person that he interacted with. And so as we begin this morning, I just want to ask you this simple question. How might God use you this week to bear his name in your families, in your workplaces, even at a hot beach on a Sunday afternoon? Are you ready and willing to be used of God regardless of your circumstance? And I pray for you that the answer is yes. And with that, would you stand with me? And let's read from the scripture, Acts chapter 17. Before we read that, I believe we have the Shema back there. Yes, Chad? Yes. The Shema is the cornerstone of, of the Bible. I mean, when Jesus is asked, teacher, what are the greatest commands? He puts together two texts, Deuteronomy 6 and, Math, or, and Leviticus 19. You can see them in Matthew 22. So if you'd like to say this as an affirmation of our faith here this morning, I invite you to say it with me. This is to be said with intention, with focus. We don't take these words lightly upon ourselves. We're making a proclamation that this is why we live and we move and we have our being. And so if you'd like to say that, I invite you to say it with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 17. Then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, Jesus. The Jews stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. So taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. On arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The, the people here were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, since they welcomed the message with eagerness, and they examined the, the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard or found out that God's message had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and disturbing the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea. But Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. And then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by human hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear more about this again. Then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it teaches us. I pray, God, that you would give us hearts to set upon its truth and also to live out that truth to our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Seated? Seated? <laughs> That's funny. Acts chapter 17. All right. So you kind of have, a, you kind of have our context. Paul and his companions, they leave Philippi, and they are headed westward. They set west on the Via Ignatia, which is a, a major east-west highway in the Roman provinces. And they go through two cities. They go through Amphipolis, which is the capital city of the southeast district of Macedonia. And it's a 33-mile travel from Philippi. All right, then they go, they don't stay there, they keep going, and they go to Apollonia, which is 27 miles west of Amphipolis. And so if my math is correct, there's essentially 60 miles west of Philippi at this point. Um, Thessalonica is a prominent city near major roads and has port access. Here's a photo of it. It is a gorgeous city. You can see the Aegean out there, and it's just 
it's quite a sight to behold. Um, it, it's the capital city of Macedonia, and it has um, its own elected officials. It, it is a city made up of free men, okay? The, the, their um, population is about up to 100,000, many scholars believe, and there was a synagogue present there. You'll notice in verse 2, they come through uh, Amphipolis, Apollonia, and they come to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Synagogue ministry is at the heart of Paul, all right? He, he is through and through, remember, a Jewish rabbi. His training was under Gamaliel. He has very high credentials. He says in one area in the text, I believe it's Philippians, he says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees meaning his training was very great. He, at his heart, at his core, is a Jewish rabbi, and God has given him particular abilities to interface with the Jewish people and show them how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Scripture. And so he has a great passion for his Jewish brothers and sisters. He has a great passion for them to be saved. Um, this is a central prayer of his, and you can read about his prayer in Romans chapter 10. Here it says in Romans chapter 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, the them here, he's talking about the Jewish people, is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. And so this is probably one of the few prayers in the Bible where there's a direct prayer for someone who is far from God. And this is directed by Paul on behalf of his Jewish brothers and sisters. And, and many of us understand this prayer. You might have a friend, a relative, someone whom God has placed in your life. They might know about God. They might even desire spiritual things, but they've never placed their faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sin. They might be trying to make their own righteousness, establishing, you know, like, I go to church, God, I do the right things, I don't do this, and I don't do this, but they've never come to say, God, I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of a Savior. God, I'm in need of your righteousness, not mine. This is the heart of Paul for his Jewish brothers and sisters. This is why he goes to the synagogue first. Elsewhere uh, in Romans, it says the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Greek all right? That doesn't mean that one is better than the other, but Paul has a heart to go to his people who have heard the story of God all their life, but may not have come to faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And that is what he is proclaiming to everyone that he sees. Friends, hear me. If you have someone in your life who is far from God, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's you come to Christ if it's you. Talk to me afterwards. Um, but if you have someone in your life who is far from God, listen to me. The best thing you can do for them is to pray that they might be saved. Now, God will give you opportunities to speak. He'll give you opportunities to show the love and the grace of God by your action. But begin by praying that God would bring them to an understanding of the gospel so that they can walk forward, not in their own righteousness, but in Christ's. Um, 
Paul proclaims this message, the message of the gospel to the Thessalonian church during three Shabbat gatherings. And I want you to notice what happens. Verses 3 and 4, he's explaining things to them. He's reasoning with them from the scriptures, showing how the Messiah had to suffer and die and rise again. He says, this Jesus I proclaim to you as the Messiah. And it says that there are some who are persuaded. Verse 4, and they joined Paul and Barnabas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. And so Paul's ministry, and this will kind of continue to be a theme, while he goes to the Jew first, it's the Gentile who comes to faith, predominantly. You know, if you were to stack up numbers. And, and there's reasons for that, perhaps, in God's economy, um, but we won't, we won't go into that whole topic. But, but Paul's biggest effect in many of these areas are the Gentile populations, and this theme continues. And then I want you to notice what happens. Verse 5, it says, but the Jews, in, in other words, people who are ethnically Jewish, part of the synagogue, but not followers of Jesus the Messiah, the Jews became jealous. And they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. In other words, there's great opposition to the work of God. And, and this is a truth that's helpful for all of us to remember. Whenever God is working and moving in dynamic ways in people's lives, there's always the assault of the adversary. There's always spiritual warfare involved with this. Now, um, there's opposition to this work of God, and the opposition here is, is described by the word zelosantes. Can you say that with me? Zelosantes. It's just such a fun word. Kids, if you want to write this on your sermon notes, you totally can. I've got some kids who, who write out in like picture-perfect Greek. It's so good. Zelosantes. And it kind of is the framework for our word zealous. Your text might say jealous. And it means this, to have intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success. The Jews come, they see what, what Paul is doing. You know, to them, it's an affront against the God of Israel. But really, it's a continuation of God's plan all along for his people. And they are zelosantes. They have intense, negative feelings because Paul, and really, it's God who is successful in bringing people to faith in the Messiah. This word is used elsewhere in the book of Acts, like Acts 5.17. It says, The high priest rose up, and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. As a result of that, they arrested the apostles and they put him in the public prison. So, Zelosantes, even looking at it within the book of Acts, has other times where they are Zelosantes and people are thrown into jail. <laughs> it, it, it's a very, very dynamic word. Before we get too upset with the Jews, just as another principle, jealousy is something that can be a cancer, all right? It, it can be a cancer. We see it spread in this early church, or in the, in the Jewish community here and within the Thessalonican community. Jews become jealous, and they go out, and they infect a whole bunch of other people with jealousy instead of maybe with the truth. Um, before we get too upset, <laughs> I was reminded this week how jealousy can affect us even in the church. It's really easy to have intense negative feelings over someone else's achievements or success, even another church. It's really easy to look at someone else and say, but they, but they, but they. But here's the truth. If it's God's work, wherever it happens, may it continue. I, I had the incredible privilege to sit down with um, Alan, who's the pastor at uh, 
oh gosh, thank you, Emmanuel, uh, at Emmanuel Church, and also sit down with the senior pastor of Calvary Baptist in the last two weeks, just as a way of, hey, let me get to know you. I know all your worship pastors, but let me get to know you. And to hear their heart for the gospel and to hear what God is doing there, I just said, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And friends, we should be a church that seeks to say, how can we further the kingdom however it happens? We should come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, keep going, keep pursuing the Lord. I, I remember a call I got even within this last year, and I happened to be the one here, so I, I, I was uh, the one answering the phone. And it was a pastor from a local church right here in Zealand, a fairly large church, and he just said, hey, we are praying for your community of faith this weekend. Is there any way we can specifically pray for you? And I said, you betcha. We are brothers and sisters our goal is not to be jealous over where people are at. Our goal should be to help people know Christ and to know his truth and to be people of the text. I'm so thankful to hear you amening that. That is such an important reminder for us because the truth is this. The gospel is never to be in competition with itself. Never. The gospel does not compete with itself. The gospel is God's gospel. And we are simply ones who proclaim it. So, we have this group, there's jealousy going on, they gather a mob, and they gather them from, your text might say, the marketplace, it's the forum in Thessaloniki, I've got a, I've got a picture for you here, um, here's the forum, this big open area, and uh, it's right, the, kind of that grassy part. That's where there would be uh, public gatherings and trials. It was also a central place in the city for shopping and for socializing. Uh, next slide, Chad. Um, this is the Forum and the Odeon, Odeon, and it's taken from the other side. This is the photo that was just prior, prior to this one. is taken from what is on your right, that vantage point. But you see in the distance the Odeon. Now, the Odeon is likely the place where the rabble-rousers would have taken Paul and Silas before the officials, and they would have had some measure of a trial or a public hearing here over what Paul and Silas and their crew are teaching. These men, driven by jealousy, they gather up rabble-rousers in the marketplace to form an uproar. Remember, the jealousy is not against Paul and Silas. It's primarily a spiritual battle from the adversary. Whenever the gospel begins to move in our lives, expect opposition. We talked about this in our study of the disciples' prayer. The reason Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, deliver us from the evil one, is because the more we take steps to follow God and be obedient to his word, the more the adversary wants to hinder that work. Some of you here today may be on the verge of making significant spiritual decisions for Christ. You, you might be being baptized today and by the way, if you're able to, I don't know if I said, I did say this earlier, but I'll say it again. If you're able to, come out today, because it's a great way to encourage people as they take the step of proclamation. And, and it's one that many of us, like I, I remember when I was a kid, I came to Christ at a young age, and I didn't want to be baptized right away because I didn't want to go along with the crowd. The pattern of Acts is belief and then baptism. And so we celebrate, when someone is believed, we celebrate their baptism. We celebrate that act of proclamation, but there is spiritual warfare involved in that as well, because doubt and worry can be thrown in a whole, along with a whole host of other things. So even as we gather today, be praying for those who are being baptized, that they would stand strong in the Lord. That's a, that's a, that's a side discussion there, but, but the battle is real. 
Prayer is our weapon against the adversary. Remember, remember, remember this. If you are facing spiritual opposition in your life, Jesus has conquered sin, and you can stand in the victory of Christ. All right? We, we don't stand powerless. We stand in the power of the one who has been raised from the dead. So we stand on solid, solid shoulders with this. But be prayerful in all those ways. There's uproar in the text here that ensues. Now, Paul and Silas are not captured, but their friends, including Jason, were. And what this means is that personal ministry in Thessalonica is no longer possible. And we find in the text that they are sent to Berea because of all this the stirring up. And you'll notice even in verse, verse 7, they make this claim, the, the, the mobster people, they, they make this claim that they're acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. Well, yes and no. I mean, they're not going out trying to start an insurrection. But there's a manufacturing of what is going on here. Paul and Silas have to leave. They don't come back. Jason gives a security bond or someone on his behalf uh, and others, and they release them. So we come to verse 10. So we've been in Thessalonica. Now we're in Berea. Berea is an interesting part of this passage because um, when Paul and Silas come to Berea, there's only a couple of verses that show what happens. You know, there's 10 verses for the first part in Thessalonica. There's six verses for Berea. And Berea is another significant city along this journey. Uh, Chad, show me that next slide. This is a regional map to kind of show you where all of these are intertwined. Uh, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, and then all the way down to Athens. So we are in Berea. Berea is 45 miles west of Thessalonica. It's located on a river, and, and it's a, a good place to be. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous setting. Uh, it's a significant Jewish community that exists here, and there's even a modern-day Jewish synagogue in Berea, the next one, and some scholars believe archaeologically that there's likely another synagogue that dates from some of this earlier times beneath this synagogue in Berea. So, Paul and Silas, following kind of usual protocol, they go to the synagogue and they begin to teach. Now, Berea, in many ways, was a teacher's dream, all right? It was a teacher's dream. The text records six verses, but notice how it describes Paul's ministry amongst the Jews at Berea. Verse 11 says, these people here were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, since they welcomed the message with eagerness, and they examined the scriptures daily to see if things, these things were so. They believed, and they trusted in Jesus. Many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. And so you have a, a very warm receptance of the gospel here in Berea. But one of the significant things that we find is that they're noble, open-minded, meaning that they are willing to learn. They eagerly accept the word, but they carefully examine the text. They don't just take Paul's word for it. They dive deep into the book to see, is what he is saying actually true? They, they don't just take his word for it. Paul's a good rabbi. He's a good communicator. He's a good um, uh, speaker of God's truth, but they say, hmm, how does that work with this, and how does that work with this? You can imagine the Bible studies that went on trying to trace Jesus all throughout the Hebrew Scripture to where they had come right now. 
The Bereans outlined for us a very healthy example of a faith community, willing to learn and accept truth, yet always being careful to ensure that what people say is consistent with the text. In other words, Bereans were true people of the book. They were not dissuaded from the truth by culture, popularity, or personal opinion. If the text said it, they wanted to follow with action. That's such a great model for each one of us here. Let me ask you a question. Are you open to biblical teaching? If confronted with truth based upon the text, do you immediately dismiss it? Do, do you test it against Scripture? Do you have a pattern of regular study of Scripture so that you can identify what is true and what is false? Increasingly, and th- this is my prayer for us, this is our elders' prayer for our church as a community, is that our desire would be to be people of prayer and to be people of the text. Not mere knowledge, but an intimate living uh, intimate and faithful living for the glory of God. It's such a, it's such an, a challenge and encouragement to me because I, I get to do this every single day. One of the things I know in my life, I go on vacation and like the whole, the whole pattern of living kind of changes. You know, you wake up at a different time, you have different patterns. It's hard to get in the text sometimes. But friends, these are the words of life. I encourage you, I invite you Spend time each day in the text and allow God to shape your heart by his truth. Paul has this brief ministry in Berea, but it's a fruitful ministry. Many come to faith and we see many just kind of plant themselves in the truth of God's word. Such a great encouragement for us. So Thessalonica, Berea, now we go to Athens. Athens, is a huge city. It's a gorgeous city. Um, Luke spends 18 verses in chapter 17 describing Paul's ministry in Athens. We, we, we find out in verses 14 and 15 that Paul is sent to Athens without his team. Because remember, uh, from our reading, the Jews from Thessalonica were jealous, and so when they found out that Paul was down in Berea teaching these things, and people in Berea were responding to the message of the gospel, they had to travel those several 45 miles um, down or over to Berea in order to say, no, you're not going to do that. And they create essentially a mob down in Berea. So Paul gets away. Silas and Timothy are able to stay. Paul is sent to Athens without his team. And there's some men who take Paul to Athens. Paul is left in Athens. These men come back and Paul is now alone. Just think for a moment what Paul has been through in the past several months. Uh, he, he and Barnabas have this kind of falling out, and he grabs another couple people to travel with him for this missionary journey. They don't exactly know where to go. He has a vision of a Macedonian man, says, go into Macedonia. So he follows, he goes to Philippi, he's beaten, he goes to Thessalonica, and he's run out of town. He goes to Berea, and he's run out of town, and now we're in Athens, and Paul is all alone. Imagine how his body hurt from the rods that hit him still in Philippi. Imagine how his heart may have hurt having to leave Thessaloniki with those young believers. Imagine how having a fruitful ministry in Berea, he is now forced to leave again. Put yourself in his shoes for just a moment and just consider how hard being a witness for Christ can sometimes be. 
Paul finds himself in Athens alone and um, faced with a whole bunch of things, all right? He, Athens is a gorgeous city. I had the opportunity to travel there when I was at Cedarville for uh, my undergrad thing. We were uh, undergrad degree, that is not just thing, but undergrad degree. We were in a group called Brass Choir, and we took our instruments and we went over there, played a bunch of concerts, but also got to see a lot of the land. We were in Athens, Corinth, Thessaloniki, Berea, Philippi, everywhere in between, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And I want to show you some photos. I didn't take these. These are better quality photos than what I had. Here is Athens. You see the Acropolis. It's center. It's up on that hill. It's got the columns. The, the Acropolis is the, is the outcropping of rock. On top of that is, with all the columns and pillars, is the Parthenon. The Parthenon is the most famous pagan temple. All right? Here's another just brilliant site. This is the Erechtheion, and it's a temple that is dedicated to Athena and Poseidon. All right? Here's another temple. This is the Temple of Athena. Gorgeous, right? Uh, here is the temple of Zeus. Man, that backlighting, that's so cool. Um, here is the temple of Themis. All right? And here's the altar of Ares. Here's just a sampling. We're not talking about altars and temples that are small. We're talking about things that are ginormous, as we would say in our house. We admire the landscape today, or at least I admire the landscape. It's, it's gorgeous. You've got the Aegean in the background. You, you look out over the city, and you're like, oh, my goodness. When Paul was here, these were operating pagan temples. They were built, and they were used for idolatry. Lots and lots of idolatry. They had pagan temple after pagan temple after pagan temple after pagan temple, and we find out in the text that when he sees... Athens, and he's waiting for them. His spirit is troubled within him when he sees that the city was full of idols. Verse 16. The word here for, for upset is a word, you know, mine translates this as troubled or provoked. Uh, you might also uh, have a translation of greatly upset. His spirit is like, ugh, ugh. Now, the, the idea behind provoked or greatly upset is an honest anger because he sees people serving idols rather than God. Um, the definition of the word suggests that he was, that he was, hardly, that he was hardly stirred to, or stimulated to preach or to win converts. In, in other words, he's so angry seeing the idolatry going on here. Right now, he doesn't even want to go out and preach. He's broken He's torn down, seeing how this pagan city operates. It's, in, it's interesting. When God sends his people to Egypt, I know we're going back a few years here, he sends them to one of the most religious places in all of the world. If you go to Egypt, there's temple after temple after temple. There's this God and this God and this God. And Athens, though different, is similar. There's this God and this God and this God and this God, this temple, this way of worshiping. And Paul gets there and he just goes, Ugh. Remember, Paul is a Jew. One of the most important commands for a Jew is in reference to idolatry. The Ten Commandments are the Ten Words begin by saying, and if you're a student in big life this last year, you know these words, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the place of your slavery. 
you shall not have any other God but me. And then if that wasn't clear enough, verse 4 says, do not make an idol for yourself, for an image, so on and so forth. Idolatry was a key component to what Jews did not engage in, right? Idolatry, murder, and um, sexual immorality were like the big three no-nos of, of Judaism. And so Paul, even with his upbringing as a Jew, he sees as a Jew, he sees idolatry and his heart is angered and provoked. Remember just a couple of chapters back in Acts 15, idolatry was one of the things that people were commanded. If they were going to follow Jesus, they were commanded, don't follow idols. Separate yourself from the pattern of idolatry, which is utterly prevalent in your society. So Paul engages Jews and God-fearers in the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue first, but he also engages the leading academics and philosophers of his day. Verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God and in the marketplace every day. It's interesting, it doesn't say, you know, in our prior two cities, it's, and some believed, and some believed, it just says, he reasoned in the synagogue with those, and in the marketplace who happened to, with those who happened to be there. But then he continues to reason. Athens was kind of a herald of academia. It's a place where knowledge and ideas just circled around. And in verse 18, you'll note, then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him, and they say, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Paul engages at a place called the Agora. Um, uh, there we go. This picture was taken in 1964. 1964. So it's a little more grown up now. On the left, you see the Acropolis. The Parthenon is up there. On the right, where it says Mars Hill, that is the Areopagus. That, that, that's the rock that kind of comes out of that section where a council of people would meet. Some suggest about 30 people would gather, and they would hear various matters having to do with civil and uh, religious issues. And Paul is engaging in the Agora people of all sorts of backgrounds. Epicureans were people who thought that organized religion was evil and whose goal in life included the absence of pain. He engages Stoics, and Stoics were people who stressed virtue and rationality and individual self-sufficiency, which may sound like, aren't those things good? I mean, virtue and rationality and self-sufficiency, it kind of sounds like some of the, the values that we might hold living in the place we live. But they do so at the expense of great spiritual pride. And they embrace many gods, because w when you embrace self-making and when you embrace um, rationality and virtue, you can miss the gospel very, very easily. And it becomes, oh, well, myself is going to be a God. I'm going to be a God because I can care for this myself. Um, Paul interacts with people from different backgrounds than himself, but, but to his well-educated hearers who spent their life discussing a myriad of ideas, it sounds like foolish babbling or ignorant showing off, all right? When they hear Paul talk, that's what they hear. The word that's used here to describe how they hear, and, and they, they, they say, uh, pseudo-intellectual trying to say, it, it's a word, it's spermologos, and it refers to picking up this little bit, and this little bit, and this little bit, 
of information. What his hearers, the, the Athenians here, is here's a guy who's picking up a little bit of this. We kind of know about that, and this, and this, and this. And then it gets to the resurrection, and they're like, hang on just a second. <laughs> Hang on just a second. Verse 32 says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, whereas others would like to hear more. It's interesting. The gospel is so clear and so simple that it can be understood by a child. It can be understood by a child. But while it can be understood by a a child, it can also be missed by the most learned and scholarly among us. We were having a conversation earlier this week in the office, and I just asked the question, why do you think Paul's ministry is not that fruitful in Athens? The text says that there's a couple who come to faith, like Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with him. But why, I asked, why do you think Athens is not as fruitful of a ministry for Paul? 1 Corinthians, which Corinth is where we're going to go next week, 1 Corinthians says this, though. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set it aside the understanding of the experts. Paul says to the Corinthian church, where is the philosopher, where is the scholar, where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. So Paul's two main groups, Jews, Christ is a stumbling block for them. It's not with his credentials, it's not with his academic background, it's Christ and him crucified and him being raised to life. Because the text says, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. Why would Jesus, this Jesus you're talking about, be someone worth anything. He was cursed by hanging on a tree. It's a stumbling block for the Jews, but it's foolishness for the Gentiles. They look at him and they say, what on earth are you trying to say? Resurrection from the dead? You've got to be kidding me. Don't you know you should be able to reason your way out of this? Don't you know that you, if you have just good morals and you have good standing and, and you are self-sufficient and you treat your, person, your, your, your people well, don't you know that that's good enough? Paul engages his hearers, though, in a manner consistent with who they are. When he speaks to Jews, he begins with the foundation of the Hebrew Bible. When he is brought before the Areopagus in Acts 17, the council that judged matters of ethics, culture, and religion, in his testimony he begins at their common point. He says, men of Athens, in verse 22, I see that you're extremely religious in every aspect. Well, yeah, they're religious. Temple, 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 temple. Idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. But he said, I I was even passing through, and I found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. In verse 23, he says, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, he himself, gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined the appointed times and boundaries of which they lived. Verse 27, he did this so that they might seek God. 
and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. But notice where Paul ends up, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, if you don't come to Christ and you repent of your sin, you are lost. The total equalizer for all of life is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, and Paul says, repent, repent, repent. A couple of thoughts as we begin to close. Sometimes I ask, all right, so we've got Thessaloniki, we've got Berea, we've got Athens. What is here that we need to take home? What is here that we need to live out? A couple of truths. Wherever the gospel goes, there will be spiritual opposition. You may not always feel it, but there will be spiritual opposition, which is why, friends, we must be a prayerful people, praying that God would lead, guide, direct, and protect us from the adversary. Another truth for us today, Scripture is the final and ultimate authority, not man, not, not reason, not philosophy. It's really easy to say, but doesn't culture say this? And but doesn't that book say this? The final authority for the follower of Jesus are the words of God. End of story. And the prayer that Holy Spirit help us always to understand the words of God. Number three, the cultural context determines, cultural context of where you are determines how you begin spiritual conversations. But ultimately, the conversation that we have with people who are far from God comes down to this. Repent of your sin. God has created you. God has redeemed you. God wants you to have a new life in him, but you have to turn from sin and towards God because your righteousness comes not from your works. It comes through Jesus alone. Athens may be different from Jerusalem, but in either place or in both places, the gospel calls people to repent and turn to God. And let me just ask you this. Where are you at today? Where are you at today? Are, are you a follower of Jesus here today? If you're not, I would love to talk with you. I would love to talk with you because whether you've been coming to church all your life or whether this is the first time you've walked through these doors, you can have life in Christ today by turning from your sin and finding your righteousness in Christ and in Christ alone. Maybe, um, maybe you're going to be baptized this afternoon. We are so excited to celebrate that with you. We want to continue to pray for you this afternoon that you would walk forward in that path that God has for you. Maybe you haven't been baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized as a believer, we invite you to talk to myself or one of the pastors, one of the elders after the service so that we can include you in that. Baptism is an amazing proclamation. If you're a follower of Jesus, seek ways in which God places you in paths of people to share with them the good news of the gospel. If you're not, find all those idols in your life. And, and followers of Jesus, find our idols in our life as well. Those things that we turn to and we find trust and we find safety and we find security in. Friends, we must turn from idols to serve the living God. Let's pray today. God, I thank you so much for the righteousness that comes through Christ and Christ alone.
Lord, it's really easy for us to find our worth in what we do and our worth in, in who we are apart from you. Um, but God, remind us again that we are people who have been called out of darkness into light. Remind us again, Father, of your sufficient work in our life. And wherever we are, God, maybe some of us are in really dark places today. Maybe we've experienced, similar to Paul, just rejection after rejection after rejection, and we're striving to follow you, and yet it seems like the, the weight keeps coming and coming and coming. God, re- renew our hearts, renew our minds, restore to us again the joy of our salvation. God, surround us with your people, followers of yours, to help encourage us in our walk. Even as we engage Paul next week, going into Corinth, finding friends of, of follow, finding friends who are followers of you and developing relationships, God, help us to walk forward in the truth of who you are. Lord, even as we breathe in and we breathe out right now, we are reminded that it's in you that we live and we move and we have our being. May all we say and do be unto your name, your glory, because you are the God who is alive. You are the only God who, who has power over sin. God, you are the only one who is worthy of our worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check out fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.